so yesterday was Shay's birthday. Happy birthday, Shay. Um, this year I didn't get her anything. Um, I got her instead um, the longest scripture reading ever done at this church. You are welcome. Um, and if you missed it, I know some of it got a little mixed up. We're going to talk a lot about it this morning, so, so don't worry. We're going to get into it. Um, all right, so this is the first Sunday after our church retreat, our annual church retreat, and it was so great to be with so many of you. If some of you are feeling a little bit of FOMO this morning, I want you to hold on to that feeling and remember it next year when we have our next church retreat, because the only thing our church re retreat was missing was you, so I, I hope you'll be there next year. Um, so we're starting a new season and it's a really rich season of tradition in the church um, because this past Wednesday wasn't just Valentine's Day, it was Ash Wednesday. Um, it's a day when a lot of believers receive a mark on their heads, right? We've all seen it. It's a mark of um, repentance and of self-reflection and it kicks off something called the Lenten period or Lent and this is 40 days before Easter and the 40 days are supposed to kind of reflect the 40 days that Jesus was tempted and during this time a lot of believers will sacrifice something. Um, a lot of believers will fast or they'll follow some kind of a dietary restriction. They'll give something up or they'll offer something. They may offer something to the church, to charity. And the goal of all of these sacrifices and offerings is to develop a deeper relationship with the Lord. It's to get a little bit more intimacy with God. Um, you're not going to find any mention of Ash Wednesday or of this Lenten period in the Bible. Um, it was introduced to the church in the fourth century. Um, but these traditions really do point us to this biblical truth that sacrifice and offering draw us closer to God. He's really clear on this in the Bible from all the way in creation, Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Um, in fact, the entire book of Leviticus is devoted to God telling the Israelites and to their priests exactly, in painstaking detail, how to make offerings and why. Why do we do this? Well, God's very clear on why. It's for atonement. Atonement. Now, this is one of these big Bible words that can feel kind of hard to grasp. And the way that I remember atonement, the way that I grasp it, is I break it down into three parts. At one mint. Because atonement starts with this idea that God wants to be at one with us. He wants to be one with us, but he is holy, and we are not. We are separated by sin. And so in order to approach him, to be reconciled with him in order to have at one mint with the Lord, a sacrifice, an offering is needed for atonement. This is the central message of the Old Testament, and it finds its fulfillment in the New Testament through Christ. So as we come out of the retreat, as we get into this Lenten season, it's the perfect time to ask, what is my offering? If we were in a community group setting right now, um, and I posed this question, what is my offering? I think I would hear a lot of really good responses. I think I'd hear things about money and tithing, about time and effort, about volunteer work, about church work, and those are all great answers. But this morning, what I'm hoping to do is to get into the Bible and get a more sort of foundational a more core understanding of what our offering is. And I hope to do that through the story of Nicodemus. 
Um, so over the next 30 minutes or so, I'll present the message in three parts. In part one, I will tell you the story of Nicodemus. You heard a bunch of it already, um, read by Shay, and, um, and I want to take you through it from beginning to end, including what wasn't read. That's part one. In part two, I'd like to get out our magnifying glass and become Bible detectives and look at that story and really ask and examine, what is God calling Nicodemus to offer? And then finally, in part three, I'd like to do something that I don't normally do up here. You know, normally, I like to explain things or to encourage, but today I really want to challenge you. I want, you to, I want to challenge you to ask this question, what is my offering? And not just ask the question, but to leave here and to do something about it. All right, so part one, let's dig in. Um, who is Nicodemus? If you're not exactly sure who Nicodemus is, I don't blame you. He is not a very prominent figure in the Bible, but he is a pivotal one. Most of his story is told in John chapter 3, which Shay read, um, and he does appear a couple more times after that, and that's important. The second time he appears after John chapter 3 is in chapter 7, just a few chapters later when the Pharisees are trying to get Jesus arrested. Um, we hear about Nicodemus there. And then several chapters after that in John chapter 19, after the crucifixion, we hear about Nicodemus again. But most of it is in chapter 3. So who was he? Well, we know that he was a Pharisee. Um, the Pharisees are the most respected religious leaders at the time. They're the keepers of the Jewish law, but they're hostile to Jesus. And Nicodemus isn't just one of them. He's one of their leaders. The text says he's a ruler of the Jews. Jesus himself calls him the teacher of Israel. So we know he's important, and he's respected, and he has status, and he has wealth. And we can infer from the text that Nicodemus has witnessed the miracles and signs and wonders that Jesus is performing at this time. And he doesn't just witness them. He is moved by them. He is so moved, in fact, that despite the Pharisees' position on Jesus, they oppose Jesus, and despite Nicodemus' position within the Pharisees, he comes to Jesus he comes to him secretly. He comes to him in hiding, but he comes. And he says to Jesus, Rabbi, that is a word of deep respect. Rabbi, you have come from God. Nicodemus can see the God in Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? Well, he offers up a truth. He offers up a truth to Nicodemus that is as challenging as it is mysterious. He says this, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. I want you to really focus in on that phrase, born again. Jesus offers this truth to Nicodemus, and it's a truth that he doesn't offer to anyone else, not in this way. Up until now, there's been a bunch of stuff in the Bible that previews this truth. And after this moment, there's a lot of stuff that supports this truth. But nowhere else in the Bible does God crack open the truth in quite this way. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It is incomprehensible to Nicodemus. He can't, he can't fathom it. 
right? He, he says, am I supposed to go through my mother's womb again? And I, I don't think he's being fresh, right? Like, I think he really, it just, it feels totally impossible to him. So for the rest of the chapter, he really doesn't say anything else. He just keeps asking, how? How? Because I think Nicodemus understands that even though he doesn't understand it, he must understand it. There's something in there that he has to understand. And um, so Jesus goes on to talk to him about water and spirit and flesh and wind, mysterious truths that feel impossible to understand. That's John chapter 3. Um, as I said, we do see Nicodemus a couple more times in the book of John. In chapter 7, the Pharisees send the temple guards to go out and arrest Jesus. Um, but the guards come back. They don't arrest Jesus because they're blown away by him. They say no one talks the way that Jesus talks. And so the Pharisees get increasingly agitated. And it's here that Nicodemus, who... In chapter 3, sneaks in in the dark and doesn't seem to understand what Jesus is saying. Here in chapter 7, he speaks up, no longer in hiding, and he asks the Pharisees um, in defense of Jesus, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? Then the third and last time we see Nicodemus is later in John 19. Um, after Jesus is crucified, Nicodemus joins a man named Joseph of Arimathea, and together they take Jesus' body away from the cross. The Bible says that Nicodemus brings uh, a mixture of myrrh and aloes. These are burial spices. And the Bible says that he brings 75 pounds of these spices. 75 pounds, that's like half of John Haas's body weight. That's a lot of spices, and it's very expensive, right? And this is important. Like, what would it take to transport all of that? Like, there is no more hiding. And so they take Jesus' body, broken for us. They receive it from the cross, and the two of them wrap our Messiah's body in strips of linen and in these 75 pounds of burial spices. Let that sink in for a second. Let this image sink in because I think it is one of the most moving scenes of devotion in all of the Bible. Jesus is dead. He doesn't have anything else to offer them, to offer Nicodemus. No more miracles, signs, and wonders. And yet, with everything on the line, with their hands, they receive him and they prepare him, and they bury the Messiah. That's the story of Nicodemus. All right, so we'll move on to part two now, and this is where I want to get out that magnifying glass. Um, now that we know the story of Nicodemus, I want to ask this question and really examine the text for the answer. What is God asking Nicodemus to offer? You might say it's defending Jesus, speaking up for him, or you might say it's burying him. And you'd be right, those are offerings from Nicodemus, but it's not what Jesus asks him to offer, not in chapter 3. So let's take a closer look. Now remember, their exchange begins this way. Nicodemus starts with this statement, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. That's what Nicodemus says. But I wonder 
if there is actually a question on his heart that he hasn't asked. I wonder if he comes in with this question that is just burning on his heart that he can't quite put into words. You know, we know that Nicodemus finds Jesus to be irresistible. That's why he's come through the dark to approach the light. And here's what I think the question that's sort of circling around his heart, I think it's, how can I know you, Jesus? What do I have to do? What do I have to offer? Jesus replies with this. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again, right? And it sounds disconnected from Nicodemus's statement, the one that he says out loud. It sounds like a non sequitur. But if he's actually answering the question that is on Nicodemus's heart, then it starts to make sense. Like, I, I start to understand that Jesus is saying this. You want to know me, Nicodemus? You want to know what to do, what to offer? What you need to offer is yourself. But not you as you are, no. What I need is a new Nicodemus. What I need is for you to be born again. This is what Jesus is asking Nicodemus to offer. Let's try to unpack it a little bit, and let's ask two things. Why? Why does Nicodemus need to be born again? And how? How can he be born again? And I think we can find the answers right here in the Bible. All right, so first, why? Why does he need to be reborn again? Or why does he need to be, um, to be reborn? He's alive. He walks and talks and thinks and feels and speaks. And you can't be born again if you're alive, right? So I think the conclusion that we have to draw is that Jesus thinks he's dead, spiritually dead. And it starts to make sense when you realize that this is not the only place in the Bible where God talks about people being spiritually dead. In Luke chapter 9, there was a man that, Luke called, uh, that Jesus called to follow him. And that man said, okay, but first let me go bury my father. And what does Jesus say to him? He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead. He's implying that there are two kinds of dead. There's spiritually dead and there's physically dead. And he's saying, let the spiritually dead go bury the physically dead because you can be physically alive and yet spiritually dead. There's another story in Luke that speaks to this idea too, the story of the prodigal son, and it's in Luke chapter 15. Um, when the prodigal son comes home, the father says this, for this my son was dead and is alive again. So that's the why. Nicodemus is spiritually dead. He can see the God in Jesus, but God is not in him. Not yet. That's why. Now let's talk about the how. Um, so in verse 3, Jesus says you need to be born again. And to help Nicodemus and to help us understand the how, in verse 5, he restates this, but slightly differently. Instead of saying, you need to be born again. He says, you need to be born of water and of spirit. Being born again means being born of water and of spirit. That clears it right up for you, right? <laughs> All right, let's break it down together. Um, this is a reference in John 3 to um, the book of Ezekiel, um, in Ezekiel chapter 26. And Nicodemus would have been familiar with this. Um, Ezekiel is one of the latter prophets. And um, 
At this time, God's people are in exile in Babylon, and Ezekiel prophesies what God will do for them when he brings them back. And so we can look to Ezekiel 26 and what he says about water and spirit to understand what Jesus is saying about being born again. Ezekiel says that to be born of water means to be cleansed. It means to be purified. Because even though you are spiritually dead before you're reborn, you are alive in a very important sense, and not just physically alive. There is a you that exists before rebirth, and that same you will exist after rebirth, and that you needs to be cleansed, needs to be purified. And the Bible says this cleansing that's needed is so deep and so thorough that it's almost like a death. In fact, the book of Romans says this. It says your old self has to be crucified. And it doesn't mean that we actually have to die, but the cleansing of the old person has to be so deep that, that it's as if your old nature is done away with. That's the first part about being born again, being born of water. The second part of being born again is being born of spirit. Cleansing is necessary, but it's not enough. I need a new nature, a new way of seeing and thinking and doing. And Ezekiel says that God will put this new nature in us, that he will put his spirit in us, that he will be in us. That's the second part of what it means to be born again, to be born of spirit. I told you you'd have to put on your Bible detective hats, right? Um, but now we know what uh, God is calling Nicodemus to offer. He's asking Nicodemus to offer his life, but not his life as it is. A, a new life, a, a life that's born of water and of spirit. Once Nicodemus encounters this truth, from there he speaks up for Jesus. And from there he receives Jesus from the cross and buries him. All right, now we'll move on to the final section, to the third and final section of my message. Um, now that we've spent some time in Nicodemus, and I really want to challenge you here. I want to challenge us to ask, what is my offering? I'd like to talk to, I think, three groups of people who are here today. I'm going to describe each of these three groups really quickly, and then I'll circle back and talk about each one of them in turn. All right, the first group is the Stony Heart Group. You may recognize that phrase from the Ezekiel 26 reading, Stony Heart. Um, you are Nicodemus before John chapter 3, before he seeks the Lord. You know, for you, seeking is really what you have to offer, and that's okay. That's group one. Group two, um, this second group has done some seeking. Um, if you're in the second group, you wouldn't say that you have a stony heart. Um, but if I asked you whether or not God had put a new heart in you, I think you'd hesitate. For you, this question of offering is mission critical. It's pivotal. It, when you put something on the line, like Nicodemus in John chapter 7 when he speaks up for Jesus, that can activate the Holy Spirit. So that's group two. Now, group three. If you're in the third group, you have sought the Lord. You've put stuff on the line. You've taken risk. You know your life belongs to the Lord. You're not perfect, you're not, but you know what it means to repent and to keep coming back to the Lord. When you ask, what is my offering? There is only one answer, and that's everything. It's everything in your life. And whether or not you've brought everything, that's the question for group three. 
So I'm gonna spend um, some time digging into each of these three groups now, um, starting with the Stony Heart group. Every time I say Stony Heart, you know I'm talking about you. You know, but let me describe it anyway, just in case. So you may or may not call yourself a Christian. You may or may not be baptized, but just about everything I've said this morning, if you're honest, sounds really unrealistic. Born again? A new spirit? What's my offering is a question that you'd like to think about, but um, you'd like to offer something to the world. Offering something to God actually doesn't seem all that relevant to you. If that's you, what I want you to know is that I was you. I was the person who said, yeah, I'll go to church on a Sunday instead of going to brunch or uh, resting. I was the person who got baptized, and I was the person who cringed inward anytime anyone would say, Alicia, God loves you. You know, I couldn't say with any sincerity that Jesus loves me or that I love Jesus. Ezekiel 26 calls it having a heart of stone. And it's not because your heart is a stone towards all things. My heart could respond with lots of passion and warmth about other things. But it was cold and unresponsive and unfeeling to the truth of Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may actually want to feel something for Jesus. Pretty sure I did. But the thing is, we can't just feel what we don't, right? Especially not us, not as New Yorkers. We are way too intellectually honest for that. You can't just decide what to believe. Our hearts are what they are. And that's why I think Ezekiel 26 should give us some comfort because in a way it's saying, you should have a heart of stone. You should feel this way. Because God hasn't given you a new heart yet. And it has to come from him. In Ezekiel 26, God, through his prophet Ezekiel, tells us, I, God, will give you a new heart. I, God, will remove your old heart of stone. God will put his spirit in you. God will move you to follow him. God will move you to keep him. It's not you. It's God. And I think that should give you some comfort. But it also gives rise to another question, which is this. If God has to do it, what can I do? That's the question. And I'd point you back to our friend Nicodemus. Nicodemus came seeking Jesus. He didn't have answers. He didn't have anything to offer, right? He asks Jesus questions. He came seeking. And what does the Bible promise to those who seek? In Matthew chapter 7, it says, if you seek, you will find. That is a promise. Your job is not to somehow create a new heart for yourself. You know, you're not, your job is not to try to believe something that you don't. You can't. But what you can do, what you have to do, your offering is to seek. Not that you can't offer other things. You can, and you should, and you should scan that orange QR code if you do. But you have to ask the questions. That's the key thing for group one. Um, so I told you I had a stony heart, right? I sat right where you're sitting with my stony heart, and now I'm standing up here with a heart that is soft, that feels a love for God and a love for all of you that is so real I can almost touch it. How did I get here? I can't tell you exactly how, 
right? I can tell you about some points along my journey, but um, it's kind of like how a seed becomes a plant. Like you can write down all the steps of how it happens and it's very logical and it makes sense, but there is some animating force that you can't put words behind, right? And it's that way with like, um, how babies are made. Like there are steps and it seems very logical and very scientific, but there is an animating force that we can't put words to. And it's, it's like that when it comes from getting here to here. That's the Holy Spirit. Um, but I can at least tell you how I got started. And I got started by seeking. And that's going to look different for everybody. I can tell you what it looked like for me. Um, for me, it was the one-two punch of the Bible and community group. I started reading the Bible. I had no idea what any of it meant. I had no idea who Nicodemus was. But I showed up at a community group week after week where I had nothing else in common with anybody there, but I needed people to read the Bible with. I needed people to ask questions of. And I would read the Bible, and I'd come to group with this legal pad of questions. That's where I started. And this is where I am. And when I say where I am, I don't mean up here. This is not the destination. Um, but a new heart is. So we tend to talk, and the Bible tends to talk about, you know, stony heart versus new heart, old versus new, you know, spiritually dead versus spiritually alive in a very binary way. And in a very important sense, it is binary, but there's also a sense in which it's not, because this life is a journey. And so um, I want to now talk to the second group, the group that's on the journey. I'm going to call this the I don't have a new heart yet group. This group says, I don't have a stony heart. I don't. I know God. I know God is good, and I think he loves me. But if I were to ask you whether or not you have a new heart, you wouldn't be sure. You know, and I, I think it's because you haven't surrendered your life yet. Not really. You know, you're holding on to the world, to your desires and your ambitions and your tastes. And therefore, your old nature is still firmly intact. There's no room yet for a new heart, a new nature. And so for you, for this group, for group two, this question of offering is a most urgent one. You know, and I don't know if the offering has to do with money. I don't know if it has to do with giving up an addiction. I don't know if it has to do with spending time caring for someone that you don't want to care for. I don't know what it is. Um, but the thing is, I think you do know what it is. I think you know what it is. I think, I'm, I'm guessing that God's placed a bit of a burden on you and there's something and maybe there's more than one something that you don't wanna do or you don't wanna give up and that's the thing. But you can't seem to get away from it. It floats to the front of your mind and it may even be floating to the front of your mind right now. This is what I can tell you about this offering. It's a key moment for you. It's pivotal. It's how the Lord wants you to seek him. This offering is what will activate the Holy Spirit in your life to do the work that he so wants to do in you. That's group two. All right, now on to the third and final group, and I'll call this the new heart group. You know, those of you who are in this group say, I have crawled through the darkness and I have found the light. My life belongs to the Lord. I am in him and he is in me. I am not perfect. My old nature tries to make a comeback all the time. Sometimes my old nature even takes over for a while. But 
eventually I know how to repent and to keep coming back to the Lord. If you think you're in this group, I'm so glad. But I also have some tough news for you because the bar is really high for this group. Your offering has to be everything. It has to be everything in your life. It has to be your life itself. The other important feature of this group is that this group, this group has to be really aware, really sensitive to who has been placed in and around their lives. Because serving these people in and around your life becomes a key way that you serve the Lord. It becomes a key channel of offering for you. And this is true of the other groups too, but it's particularly true for this group, this new heart group. By the way, um, this new heart group is not, is not, is not just for pastors of the church. I know many, many people with new hearts who are accountants or who work in insurance or marketing or technology. Like, I may be an elder of the church, but in a lot of ways, I'm really just a person who goes here, right? Like, I didn't go to seminary. I didn't start this church. I'm not on staff. I don't get paid by the church, but God's given me a new heart, and he's asked me to offer what I can to this church, and that includes standing up here. So for the new heart group, the question is, have you offered everything yet? Because the difference between not offering everything and offering everything is the difference between loving the Lord and seeking his face. It's a difference between speaking up for Jesus versus being so desperate for him that you have to receive him from the cross, that you have to bury your Christ. Have you offered everything yet? All right, I want to tell you about an activity we did um, last week, um, the, the women at the retreat. I want to tell you about an activity we did um, to bring some life to everything that I've been talking about this morning, and I'll be wrapping it up with this. Um, so on Saturday afternoon at the retreat, Marcy Miller asked us all to write down words that describe who we are as women of God, and I want to tell you what I wrote down. So I took a post-it, and I wrote down gritty and focused, and hardworking, and leader, and strong, and determined. I wrote these things down pretty quick, and I thought, yeah, I'm done. But then I realized I'm not done. And I got out a second post-it, and I started to write down different kind of words. I wrote down um, forgiving, empathetic, caring, understanding, flexible, generous. And I, when I looked at these two posts together, I, th I thought, wow, it almost sounds like two different people, but it all tr it's all true. It describes me. And here's the really cool thing that I realized. On that first post-it, the one with all of those kind of power words, those words used to be linked to a bunch of different words that didn't even enter my mind as I started writing. Like, they didn't even enter my mind because they don't describe me anymore. Like, here are the words I didn't have to write down, okay? They were unforgiving, proud, show-off, insufferable. This is really unflattering stuff. I'm getting really vulnerable with you because I want to tell you that I didn't have to write them down anymore because they're part of my old nature, through the Holy Spirit, I've put that old nature off and I get to unlock a new nature, a bunch of new words on that second post that God had intended for me all along, that I had caught glimpses of through my life, that, but that weren't really unlocked, weren't really what I brought to the table um, until 
I surrendered, you know, until the first post-it words got cleansed and what was left I got to combine to make up my new nature. And then Marcy had us do this. She had all of us look at all of these words that we had written down and she asked all of us to pick one word, just one word out of all of those words. The one really special thing about us, the one thing that God needs from us in his kingdom. And it was pretty cool because in that room, like we all took it so seriously. We really deliberated. I think we all wanted to choose really wisely. And for me, my word was courage. And I wrote it down on this square piece of fabric with a special marker so that Marcy can take all these squares and make a quilt out of them. There's not a lot of quilting in the army, so we'll see how it turns out. Um, but it was a really meaningful exercise. It was just a really beautiful way for the Lord to show me just how far he had brought me. And then as I put my word courage down on the pile of squares, I saw my friend's square, the one that said unlocker. Like that's not even a real word, but I knew exactly what she meant. Like, and it is so true. It's gotta be a word, now it does, because she unlocks the God in things. She's done that for me and Jason over the years through her friendship and prayer. She's been doing it for the people of this church by helping them to unlock their testimony. She does it in her workplace. Um, and then I saw my other friend's square, the one that said truth speaker. And I thought, wow, yeah, she has spoken some truths into this church over the years. And so as the squares were getting piled up, we got to see the beauty of it all, right? These squares that represent our new natures, but not just the natures, like all the offerings that flow from our natures. We got to see how we serve one another, the people of this church, how we mother our children, how we give to the church, to those in need, how we pray for the hurting and the unsaved. We don't all always get it right, but somehow it all fits together, and that is the kingdom of God. In John chapter 3, you may have noticed that Jesus talks about the kingdom of God in two different ways. In the first, he says, see the kingdom of God, and in the second, he says, enter the kingdom of God. And no matter what translation I looked at, that see versus enter distinction existed. And I think it's because the Lord wants us to know this is not just about eternity. It's not just about entering heaven. It's about our time here. It's about seeing and tasting heaven here through each other, through what we have to offer. Um, so Phil's going to pick it up next week with part two of this What's My Offering message. And I think he's going to be in Nehemiah, um, if you need to brush up on the book of Nehemiah. And, you know, I said I want to challenge you to think about what's my offering, right? And I want you to think about going away and doing something about it. And one of the things that you can do is to come next week and continue to meditate on this and to pray on it and to let the Lord do his work in you. Let's pray. Um, God, thank you for being with us today. Um, Holy Spirit, I want to invite you here. You are wanted here. Um, and God, if there is anything good that I said, anything true that I said, um, I pray that you would take it, that you would take it, and that you would do the work that only you can do. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.